0: On this Reformation Sunday, it's appropriate that we think about all the ways in which we should be Lutherans, continuing the sermon series, celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation, and particularly Luther's uh, creation of 95 theses to confront what he thought was corruptions in the church at the time. So today's everything all about Lutheran, Lutheranism and German, so we've got wonderful compositions from Bach, Uh, We have a Lutheran theology that's been part of our liturgy of a prayer of confession and absolution, something we don't normally do at Kenilworth Union, and the hymn of response to the sermon will be one of those hymns that considered one of the top five all-time Lutheran favorites, so we've got everything Lutheran today in our liturgy. I want to turn to a reading from Paul's letter to the church in Rome and start with a little context. Saul was a man in the early first century of Palestine who believed fully in the law of the Hebrews. He preserved in every way possible Israel's chosen uniqueness before God, and he spent his life living the law. He fought and killed anyone who would obstruct the law because this is the way he believed that you would find your way to stand before God at the end of your day and the end of all of your days. Paul was fierce. Then along came the risen Christ. Christ Jesus struck him down on the Damascus Road and asked him quite simply, why do you persecute my church? For three days he stumbled in darkness and when the scales finally fell away, Saul's life was changed forever, including his name, and he was henceforth always known as Paul. Paul was liberated from the need to earn an elusive righteousness through the law and instead was given the grace and freedom to live fully before God by Christ's witness to him. Paul turned all of his passion and rhetoric to stand against the conventional religion of the day and proclaim the good news of the gospel wherever and to whomever he could make it known. He wrote a church, He wrote a letter to a fledgling church in Rome. It was a church filled with Jews and Gentiles, and they were always debating, how is it that you are saved? How do you stand before God at the end of your days? So this letter lays out a sweeping narrative of God's salvation plan for all people in Christ. We've been studying it for many weeks now in our Wednesday Bible read-along, and we all confess that it's dense, but it's life-giving. It's words that confront us, but it's also words that greatly comfort us. Our reading today is from the Common English Bible, which I think is just a little bit clearer. It begins with Paul's thesis and then one of his arguments. And before we hear these sacred words, please join me in prayer. God, we pray that you will stir among us as we hear these ancient words. Let your Holy Spirit stir our hearts and minds, that in hearing we may experience afresh these life giving words of the gospel, and so that in hearing we might believe, and in believing give our lives back to you. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Here's our reading. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel from faithfulness for faith. As it is written, the righteous person will live by faith. And then later he writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, in order to shed every mouth and make the whole world have to answer to God. It follows that no human being will be treated as righteous in God's presence by, treating, by doing what the law says, because knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, but now, God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, which was confirmed by the law and the prophets Now God's righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who have faith in Jesus. There is no distinction, Jew or Gentile or Pagan. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but all are treated as righteous freely by God's grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God for that reading. So it's a question that's vexed us since the very earliest recorded time, the Hebrews, and then Paul, and even in the church in Rome and us today. How can I live in a way that pleases God? How can I earn a place in heaven? And how will I know? Those answers can be frightening and exhausting. Pardon me, those questions can be frightening and exhausting. So we can only hope that we can have answers that are satisfying and liberating. Now, last week, Bill preached a sermon of why we should have never left the Mother Church, and in that he lifted up a passage from Matthew's Gospel in which Jesus entrusted Peter with the keys to heaven and the responsibility to bind or loose sins on earth and in heaven. And from this early statement from the statement the early church claimed authority through the apostle Peter and all of those that followed him to shape the lives of the faithful. Now you've seen artists interpretation of Peter at the pearly gates. Some of them are comical. Peter with a long beard and a long list and he's checking people off. There's certainly a lot of jokes about it but also there's a lot of artist renderings of how frightening this is and was particularly in the Middle Ages there was a man standing there who was going to grant you entrance or not. Now, Peter had always been a faithful follower of Jesus, and he had always been one of the most failing of his apostles. He seemed to always get it wrong before he got it right. So in many ways, for Jesus to choose Peter as the emblem of heaven's gatekeeper seemed to say, even you can be included as with Jesus's earthly gatherings of bringing in sinner and saint and Jew and Gentile and pagan and no questions asked, Jesus gathered everybody in. To have Peter then standing at the da- gates seemed to think that those sinners who might have failed just might have a chance with Peter who's going to look upon us with the same mercy that Jesus looked upon him. There are many of us that have tried and all we're told is to just have faith that was the teaching in the early church but by the late middle ages the church in rome was no longer bringing people to faith through the gospel of the good news evangelism wasn't necessary because they were the only game in town they dominated everything politics economics culture religion evangelism wasn't necessary So from this early teaching and the desire to continue to have more fierce control and expand their control, rose an ideology that there is no salvation outside of the church and you must remain obedient to the teachings, the sacraments and the doctrines of the church or you will perish. There is no life outside of the church. The church teachings had maintained that God had become angry at human's disregard for the law which revealed the sins that humans committed and also their sinful nature. So God demanded retribution through the suffering and death of Jesus. And since Jesus suffered and died, you too needed to suffer. People needed to confess, then they needed to endure penance until they had paid the price for the entrance to heaven. And penance included maybe simple prayers, a rosary. You were to give and give and give alms. You were to fast you might have to leave your life and make a pilgrimage, and there were all other sorts of forms of self-denial and self-abuse. But the church told you until that penalty was paid, there was no life eternal. So who could stand before such weight? Who could stand with such weight before God? Since there is no salvation out outside of the church and it decrees, it almost seemed I mean, really, it almost seemed like an act of mercy when the church created indulgences. Now, the word indulgence originally meant favor or relaxation. These indulgences exempted a sinner from some or maybe the entire penalty of sin. So consider this. If you've got a family member who strayed, you've all got someone that did. You've got a family member that strayed, and you are worried that this person is going to linger in purgatory forever you could appeal for an indulgence and say please I you know I need to get I I need to get someone through the pearly gates or maybe you know yourself that you're not doing what God's looking for you to do and you know what your sinful nature is so you're looking for an indulgence it's it's kind of an insurance policy to make sure that you don't linger in purgatory forever The original intent of an indulgence was compassion, but with a lot of human constructions, it turned into something else. You got so you could pay for your indulgence, and you bought your indulgence, and it became a money-making scheme of monumental proportions. If life on earth seemed hard and God remote, the burden of sin seemed to make it even more impossible. So then, there's Martin Luther. He became so convicted of his sins that he suffered from what was known as scrupulosity. Now from scrupulosity, we don't hear that word very much. Scrupulosity comes the word scruples, and we certainly know what scruples is. But scrupulosity is defined as the obsessive concern with one's own sin and a compulsive performance of religious devotion. You see, he, like everyone else in the 15th century, swam in this sea of sinfulness, and I've got to do something, I've got to do something. So he abandoned his father's ideas for him to become a lawyer. His father had invested heavily. Books were expensive. His father had invested heavily for him to become a lawyer, and Luther was very bright. He was very articulate. He wrote beautifully, and he argued really well. But he abandoned all that to take refuge in an Augustinian monastery. But becoming a monk even made it worse. Consumed with his own sin and inability to confess all that he could and frequently enough and to do all the penance, he drove his confessor crazy. Finally, Brother Luther, pardon me, finally, Brother Martin was commanded to get up off of his knees to stop scrubbing the floor and instead channel his intellect and obsession into studying scripture. And that's where he would find something. So he did, he studied scripture and he rocketed through the ranks of the academy and became a full professor. He moved to Wittenberg and that's where he started teaching and writing. In the year 1515 he struggled with Paul's letter to the Romans, trying to reconcile in holy scripture what he'd been taught for so many years. And then he ran up against verse 116 which we heard. The gospel is God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God that's not what he'd thought was true but here Paul is clearly arguing that we are saved by faith and then there's the next verse God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel from faithfulness for faith and here Luther clearly understood that Paul's letter meant that God's goodness is not revealed in the law but through the gift of unmerited grace According to Brother Martin's discovery in Paul, this notion of sin is being curved in on oneself without concern for God or neighbor, and it's all of the ways we put ourselves in place of God or make idols in false places. Now, Romans also tells us that sin is something that we cannot escape, nor can we ever earn our way out of it. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That's in chapter 5, verse 20, and we hold on to that. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And so God does not abandon us. God came to us in Jesus to turn us back to God, to lift the burden of our sin and to offer forgiveness generously with abandon. God's grace is freely given to all of those who have faith. And that's it, to have faith. So the man who suffered scrupulosity then wrote, I quote, I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates." Brother Martin became so convicted, not only of the heresy of indulgences, but all of the theology that placed the burden of salvation on individuals and that kept them from knowing and receiving God's good grace. And so 500 years ago, the day that we celebrate in 1517, he drew up a list of 95 theses, little statements that he wanted to argue and he mailed them to his bishop. And when he mailed them to his bishop, he signed his name for the first time, Martin Luther. And Luther is the German word. It's a pun on the Greek word for someone who is freed. Luther was freed, and he was liberated from everything that he'd been taught. Indulgences were the first of the corrupted teachings to fall. No longer would people need to buy a piece of paper to prove their worth or value. And no longer would Luther support doctrines that oppressed people when God only seeks to love them. Sin does not have the last word. God gets the last word, and that word is always grace. Now, I took a big history and made it into a very little history lesson. There's so much more that we could say, but. Our post-enlightenment minds might wonder how that happened back then. Because we certainly were so much smarter, were so much more evolved. We would never allow some institution to tell us how to live, nor would we ever fall prey to some notion that our worth is bound up in what a piece of paper says. Or would we? I've got a list. You've got yours. May I just identify a few? Join the travel soccer or hockey team or insert another sport or music or interest so that you can hone your skills to catch a recruiter's attention. Score high on the SATs or the ACTs and write a rock star essay in order to get admission to move to the head of the pack. Graduate SUMA or have the right internships so that you can catch the eye of the right employer. We need to maintain our figure We want to create the winning fantasy football team. We have to kill the quarterly revenue numbers to keep our job. We know that there's always someone keeping score and that ledger is rarely very kind to us. We also know woe to the one who fails because recovery is elusive if ever possible. In all this pressure to perfect one's life, particularly when there is no possibility of living a perfect life, it may lead to obsessions or anxiety or fear or any of the number of ways we seek to harm ourselves, kind of like Luther's scrupulosity. So to combat these emotional and psychological burdens, we have evolved. We have practices for meditations. We have theories to reduce stress and we have medications to anesthetize us from life, but rarely are they sufficient to remove the impossible goals that caused the anxiety in the first place. Now, what I want to showcase is how oppressive it is to try to earn our worth through the eyes of the omnipotent and the wrathful other that's always elusive. And we also don't live in a world that offers very many do-overs. I also want to showcase the relief we might experience if we were willing to admit with humility what the grand narrative of faith tells us. We are fallible, we are human, we will fall short, and immediately in the gospel there's a promise that God will keep God's covenant with us, God will seek to claim us with grace, and with God we get to have a do-over. Now here's an important disclaimer I need to put, not just a disclaimer, but the real truth. I am not criticizing the 20 to 25 percent of us who suffer from some form of mental illness. This is not necessarily my statements about anxiety, uh, of condemning them. But there is, There are mental illnesses, and in the face of mental illness, whether it be physical or mental, it's a mark of health to pursue diagnosis and treatment but for those of us that don't suffer from a mental disorder. Our perfection-seeking culture has infected too many of us with anxiety. So going back, in the late Middle Ages, sin was levied so heavily while grace was withheld that people struggled under a burden without relief. Luther's Reformation lifted the weight of being labeled a sinner for eternity by restoring divine grace freely given by God, there was a new life given to them. In our post-enlightenment mind, we don't like to hear about sin. We don't want to be labeled a sinner, so we don't talk about it ever, and we don't go to confession, and we don't want to talk about it. So therefore, we don't have the ability to acknowledge that we don't measure up to God, and by avoiding sin, we've also lost the experience of what it's like to be given unmerited grace. We miss out on God calling us good and beloved and accepted and always welcomed. Now there's a Lutheran pastor by the name of Nadia Boltzweber. She's about five inches taller than I am and she's got a short buzz cut haircut and she rarely wears a robe so that you can see that her arms are completely tattooed covered. When she's studying scripture and wrestling with something, she might get an additional little ink to make sure that she can focus on that text a little bit more clearly. She's very cool. She's very hip. She kind of doesn't fit into the norm of what we might think a minister should look like. From her experience of founding churches, she knows people all too well and that they are averse to ever confessing sins. And early in her life, that same practice of confession alienated her. She writes, my suspicion is when I heard you are a sinner, what I really heard is you are a bad immoral person. And hey, if I'm someone who doesn't cheat on my taxes or my spouse or I don't murder or steal, I don't really want to spend my Sunday morning having someone in a robe imply that I might do those things why should I care if someone says to me that some god I may or may not believe in has erased the check marks against me for things that I may not even think of as sins? But she stuck with the Lutheran liturgy, the confession of sin, and she continues in her statement, usually only we know how far short we fall from the glory of God. But we know, and in those moments alone, when again we're beating ourselves up or trying to deny it, or again making promises of self-improvement, in those solitary moments we know, and we know that God knows. Now It was Luther who recovered the biblical truth that sin is what turns us from God, turns us inward and towards smaller idols. And it was the same Luther and Lutheran theology that gave Nadia the path to freedom. From confession's humble posture comes freedom. We are always assured of God's grace. Now the church she founded in Denver is called A House for All Sinners and Saints. And it serves those on the margins, drag queens and drug addicts and aging hipsters and those who would probably never dream of walking in a mainline middle America Protestant church. It was filled with those who were like what Nadia used to be, because she too had one time abused drugs and was a creature of the night. But this was a church that she started and she knew was needed. It struggled for many years in the beginning. It met in the basement of old houses and in storefronts that were steamy hot. But they held on fast to their Lutheran liturgy and to her preaching. It was after Nadia preached at Red Rocks one Easter morning outside of Denver, and Red Rocks is a gorgeous amphitheater up in the mountains, and she preached to a crowd of over 5,000. After that, House for All Sinners and Saints started to get a bunch of visitors. They attracted people wearing Dockers who drove in from the suburbs. At first, it annoyed her. Those people would have been welcome at any other church. They could have found home anyplace else, but yet they were coming here. And they stayed. They stayed. She even had on their website for a while, if you're just coming to look, why don't you go watch us on the web? I mean, what church would put that on their website? <laughs> but they stayed, and they grew. And so later on, she had a church meeting, and people talked about why they were there, the hipsters as well as those golf shirt-wearing suburbanites. And in one meeting, one of these new participants said that he had no idea what he believed, but he knew that something happened in the Eucharist. He would have never been at a house for all sinners and saints if he wasn't sure that broken people were welcome in a church, but he knew that broken people were welcome there. And there was another suburbanite who felt that that was a place where she could really pray and finally be herself. And then there was a Brownie troop leader who was not sure if she would ever fit in there or anywhere else, but she felt very close to God in the liturgy. And then finally, one of the long-term members who was one of the originals stood up and spoke, and I quote, as the young transgender kid who was welcomed into this community, I want to say that I'm glad you are here You're people that look like my mom and dad, and I'm glad you're here because I can have a relationship with you that I can't have with my mom and dad. See, Lutheran theology blows away all the life's equations that we are so often handed. Try hard and you'll be rewarded. Don't let anyone see you sweat. Just try harder. You need to earn your way. No one cares. You need to earn your way before God. We should all be Lutherans. I was raised Lutheran. We had potluck suppers. We had a rainbow assortment of jello salads of all colors possible. And we knelt shoulder to shoulder and we confessed our sins and we received the assurance of grace. The Lutherans know that God wants us to live in freedom. There's another Lutheran pastor, another woman, and one of the great debts of thanks that I owe to Luther and Lutherans is that finally women could be ordained, so I wouldn't stand here if it wasn't for them, blazing that trail. So this pastor, Emily Scott, who founded a dinner church in Brooklyn, writes, and I quote, at its best, Lutheran theology has the capacity to be profoundly freeing. It proclaims that each and every one of God's creatures is loved wholly and completely just as we are. We need not suppress the fearful and wonderful ways in which each of us has been made. So as we go, we remember these statements from Jesus. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear and my burden is light. Thanks be to God for the gift of Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God for our faith in him. Amen.